0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Eric Heron, author of Normalizing Corruption – Failures of Accountability in Ukraine, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. Eric Heron is Everly Family Distinguished Professor of Political Science at West Virginia University. His research focuses on political institutions, especially electoral systems. He has traveled extensively to conduct research in Eastern Europe and Eurasia, including a term as a Fulbright Scholar in Ukraine, and 15 election observation missions. He has published research in the American Journal of Political Science, Journal of Politics, and other uh, journals. Eric Herron uh, also authored uh, numerous books, uh, including the Oxford Handbook of Electoral, uh, Systems, um, Elec- Mixed Electoral Systems, Contamination and Its Consequences, and Elections and Democracy after Communism. Hello, Eric, and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, it's, it's great to join you. Thank
0: you. So when one speaks about Ukraine, corruption will be mentioned sooner or later, and I believe it will be sooner than later. <laughs> uh, and uh, in Ukraine, there is hardly anyone who would dispute the fact that corruption is unfortunately one of the constant features of the political, societal and economic systems of the society in general. And your book offers an insight into the accountability system and you draw attention to elections. Uh, could we start with a brief description of the electoral system in Ukraine, which I understand is a big uh, issue and probably uh, it can be a topic for a separate conversation. Um, in your book, you describe in detail the accountability system in Ukraine, drawing attention to how parties participate in elections. Um Could we talk about if the number of parties that participate in elections somehow uh, signals or maybe contribute to the present challenges that democracy uh, process faces in Ukraine?
1: Of course, that's a, a big question and a big task because we have the issue of the electoral system. And if we think about the electoral system, As the rules that dictate how citizen votes are translated into outcomes or seats in a legislative assembly or a winner of a presidential election. That's a big topic and Ukraine has indeed been, um, unusually prolific in selecting and changing its election rules over time. There's also the issue of election administration. These are the procedures and also the people who are involved in the registration of voters and candidates, the processing of votes, uh, everything from checking identification on election day, passing out ballots, counting the ballots, and so on, and certifying the process. And then, of course, we have the role of political parties, political parties as contestants in elections, and political parties as participants in the election administration process and participants who have a vested interest in its outcome. And we can go in lots of different directions and maybe, um, which, where would you like me to start?
0: Uh, Let's start with a number of uh, political parties that participate in election. Maybe that somehow contributes to this very entangled history of elections in Ukraine.
1: So we do have to think about the, what, what we mean by a political party and. If you look at the literature in political science on political parties, there are different ways to think about what we might identify as a political party. The, the bottom line is that in general, we define organizations that are seeking office using a particular label as a political party. We have this expectation that they also have a platform or an ideology that's clearly defined that can be differentiated from other political parties, that they have an organization, that they serve as a conduit of information from voters to government and and back and forth, that they serve in the governing process and so on. There are lots of characteristics we associate with parties. And if we look at the landscape in Ukraine, we can see that some parties over the period of independence have approached this, level of a political party that meets many of those criteria, but we also have a large number of organizations that participate in elections that have labels that fall short of what we might consider to kind of developed, organized political party. Mm. And in the book, I talk about uh, a particular subtype of these parties, the the technical parties, and they, they are not unique to Ukraine perhaps, but they are prominent in Ukrainian politics. And what we see them doing is many things. I focus on their role in election administration, but famously political parties have been formed whose names are quite similar to more common political parties or, or, or better known political parties. And these technical parties or clones might be attempting to draw votes off from the major competitor. Uh, In election administration, because political parties have the right to membership on precinct electoral commissions, there's an incentive for there to be this proliferation of parties. And major parties have partnered with these ephemeral organizations. They may not be organizations. They may be essentially a name that is registered as a party, but not exist much beyond that to populate these commissions to try and push uh, the process and the outcomes in the direction that the major political parties want. And this is a phenomenon that has uh, been present over time and has changed a little bit over time. So just to kind of summarize, you know, Ukraine has had a history of many political parties. It's only had a handful of truly competitive political parties that have, there are some of these hallmarks that we think about with a political party in Western Europe or in North America, uh, some of the characteristics I listed earlier. But there are many other competitors who are called political parties who affect the results in different ways that are less developed. And you know, from my perspective – both create problems and also solve problems in the Ukrainian political process, and it's that tension between their their contribution to problems and their the need to have them around to solve problems that is um, kind of the foundation of what I talk about in the book.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, when we talk about many political parties in Ukraine, we're probably talking about like hundreds of them.
1: <laughs> and well, the- sure, sure, over time, for sure, <laughs> we we are talking about. Hundreds.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in your in your opinion, what would be a productive way to manage this plurality uh, in terms of political uh, parties? Because if uh, some parties are banned or prohibited, there will be an issue of freedom of speech, and this uh, factor will be used and abused by uh, many other parties. So, in your opinion, what would be some or what would be uh, some maybe measures that would somehow help balance this kind of plurality, which, like you pointed out, uh, all these political parties exist, but many of them are quite technical and they probably contribute to some further problems and issues rather than help solve them.
1: Right. And I think the key point that you raised is to try and find balance. Mm-hmm. At, at, in, in one of the chapters in the book, I talk a bit about how technical parties' participation in election administration can influence outcomes, or at least appears to influence outcomes in ways that we that they shouldn't. In other words, uh, when technical parties and their partners, major parties dominate the officers, and, and every polling place has a set of officers and a set of members, and they make decisions about how the ballots are going to be processed in those polling places. When there's dominance by a political party and its technical parties, they tend to do better in those polling places. And that is a troubling sign that underneath the process, we, we're seeing some kind of manipulation. And I can say that I have observed this type of manipulation as an election observer in past elections in Ukraine. So so there is a problem that, that needs attention. But I also agree with the underlying premise of your question, and that is, if we have a democratic society. We have to be very careful about limiting political parties administratively or, or through through a through a legislative process. And so, what's the the balance that we can strike between having too many parties and too many parties of a particular type, and not having an overbearing governance structure that is dictating which parties are acceptable and which parties aren't acceptable. And there are a couple of things that I think Ukraine should consider. Mm -hmm. And one one quick side note, I'm not Ukrainian. And I respect the fact that I'm an outsider. And I want to be very careful about making recommendations about what Ukraine (laughs) should or shouldn't do. It's really up to the Ukrainian people to decide what they should or shouldn't do. All I'm trying to do is to bring perspective from an outsider, a perspective from a political scientist who, um, has had a long association with Ukraine. I'm a big fan of Ukraine. Um, and I, I know it it can be a successful country, a successful democracy. I have seen the country. I visited the country many times. um, I've interacted with lots of people and my perspective is one of, again, as an outsider, I can observe things perhaps in a different way than people on the inside can. And I would hope that um, you know my perspective is taken with that uh, intent uh, when people read the book or, or interact with me. But getting back to the question of, of political parties and, and then how do you manage it? So one method to affect the number of parties is to alter or modify the electoral system. We know that electoral systems can influence how many parties participate and how parties participate. And I'm not here to tell Ukrainians which electoral system they should have. There are pros and cons to every electoral system. But I would implore Ukrainians to to think about one thing. They should stop, and this is a political politicians uh, and citizens they should stop changing their electoral system mm-hmm. settle on an electoral mm-hmm. system and adapt to the rules and incentives that are provided by that electoral system i think one of the problems and i point this out in the book is the instability in the electoral system creates problems for accountability and the development of accountability and it will also help the electoral system stabilize Uh, if the rules are consistent. So that's one way to address this question of political parties without banning certain types of parties. The other piece of this is to modify the administrative process. So I've mentioned that in the book, I talk about balance and that as an example, during the uh, presidential election in 2010, when election commissions were reconstituted in the first round so that essentially technical candidate representatives were removed, and the members of the commission had to be officially aligned with. In that case, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko or Viktor Yanukovych. The, uh, the 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 data suggests that there really wasn't an influence on the results based on who was the chair of the commission. That balance, having commissioners in this particular case, supporting both sides and an equal number, uh, created an environment where it was difficult to manipulate uh, the process or the outcomes. And that's another way to more effectively deal with the number of parties. So thinking about changing election administration to reduce the incentive for technical parties to exist and participate in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. I so much agree with you uh, on this point that uh, Ukraine probably needs to set up the rules and follow them because there is a real problem with following the rules and I think it's again connected with corruption not only in terms of election system but it's a just systemic what we call system corruption systemic uh, mm-hmm. corruption and um uh, in this connection i would like you maybe to uh, talk a little bit about your experience as an uh, election observer you mentioned that um, uh, you uh, traveled to ukraine and specifically for elections as well and maybe uh, the sub question to this will be the one that i always try to ask whenever i have a chance to speak with the uh, scholars of political science of course, this is the election of um, uh, Yanukovych, um, because for me, it's just a, uh, such an embodiment of the collapse of the political system, of the election system, of all kinds of systems, because I can still understand how he could uh, become president after all those um, flaws were revealed in court, but still, he was given a chance to become president.
1: Yeah, so that's a big question, and and asking that of of you know an American in the wake of the 2016 and 2020 elections. I mean, there are many Americans, myself included, who ask ourselves, how did President Trump win, and how did he almost win re-election? So, you know, Viktor Yanukovych, while he is an incredibly, to say, flawed figure, doesn't do justice to the problems with Viktor Yanukovych, he embodied uh, a viewpoint that, especially until the, um, the you know, illegal annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbas, uh, was incredibly appealing to a large number of Ukrainian citizens and Ukrainian voters. And I think this is one of the great challenges for Ukraine moving forward. Even with some of those citizens unable to participate in elections, there is a divide in Ukrainian society that some people associate with regions, some people associate with language. I, I tend to think of it more as a, a difference in worldview. Mm. And that orientation is also associated with region. It's associated with language, but it's a bigger picture of how do you view Ukrainian society, its relationship with what we might call the West, its relationship with Russia, its relationship with history. And how do we interpret who are the heroes of the Ukrainian past? And what does that mean about how we view Ukraine today? What should be the role of, of not just the Ukrainian language, but what should be the role of minority languages in, um, in state activities. And what does that tell us about Ukraine today? And how, again, society and the state interact with one another. So I want to set that aside and get to your main question, which had to do with election observation. But I do think that, you know, the Viktor Yanukovych win was, um, reflected more than his personality. It, it's, a, it's more than about Viktor Yanukovych himself. In many ways, you know, to an American, it's also the victory of Donald Trump was more than about Donald Trump. It was about Donald Trump, but it was about more, more than Donald Trump. That was in 2016. And his loss was also more than about Donald Trump as well. So about election observation. One of the great opportunities I've had over my career is to serve as an election observer many times in Ukraine but in other countries as well and as a as a faculty member you know many of your listeners will know the, the sort of three basic roles that faculty members have at most universities but some might not uh, so typically our our work is divided into research teaching and service and I, I've always tried across my career to integrate those three pieces. So I I find that things I do for service, I can use in my teaching and sometimes use in my research. and, And all of those components of the job can be synthesized, not always, but sometimes. And I found election observation to be one of those great opportunities that really does synthesize all of those pieces. I've learned a tremendous amount by being an observer that informs my research on elections. I'm able to bring anecdotes into the classroom that students really engage with. And also, uh, it's an important task. I think that having outsiders observe and report on what they find is useful for any society. It's useful for Ukraine. It's useful for the United States. It's useful uh, for all of us to have feedback. So what have I seen? Well, you know, there are times when I have been in Ukraine or elsewhere, and the process, you know, of observation is rather boring. And honestly, that's what you want. (laughs) A boring process means that things are going well. The workers are efficient, they're you know, making few mistakes, they're human, they're going to make mistakes. I mean, as a side note, I work as an election commissioner in the United States as well. So I have great sympathy for the tremendous effort that it takes to be a, a poll worker in Ukraine. I mean, I think about this every time I'm working in American election because I get there at the polling place you know, five, five thirty in the morning, but I'm home by nine o'clock at night and mm-hmm. my job is done. Mm-hmm. And at nine o'clock at night, in every election I've ever observed the, the work is just beginning mm-hmm. because all of the votes are hand counted mm-hmm. again in the elections that I've observed. So what have I seen in Ukraine? Typically, typically I see really dedicated citizens and public officials trying to do a good job. That does not mean I haven't seen significant problems as well. And there have been times, um, in 2004, for example, I was in Herson uh, observing elections, both in villages and in urban areas. And there were many efforts to intimidate voters, to stuff the ballot box or to alter results in ways that would be helpful. Uh, to Viktor Yanukovych in that particular election. In other elections, I've seen chairs of polling commissions, officers on polling commissions, members of polling commissions, participating in efforts to steal the vote uh, Mm -hmm. during local elections in in Odessa, for example. And I, I don't say this to suggest that elections are always fraudulent in Ukraine. In fact, it's been impressive to see how the process has improved over time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think that the process of observation, as I mentioned, is incredibly instructive to me as a researcher, as a classroom instructor, and also as someone who wants to contribute to the international community and, and use some of the skills and expertise I have to, um, to help inform Ukraine or other uh, countries uh, on, on best practices for elections.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. uh, Overall, the uh, 2019 election was recognized as fair and democratic. uh, But uh, still, uh, this topic about corruption is uh, our uh, everyday conversation. So what are the roots of corruption, in your opinion? Uh, Is it somehow connected with the Soviet legacy as well? Because you um, a little bit touch upon this in your book as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that one one thing we need to recognize is while the book focuses on Ukraine, Mm -hmm we can see elements of corruption or you know the practices that i call normal normalized corruption outside of ukraine as well mm-hmm. so if we think about a couple of things first of all corruption if we think about corruption as a the use or misuse of public office for private gain and we can measure gain in many different ways we see that in advanced democracies. We see that in authoritarian societies, we see it in societies that are in transition. And also, if we think about the question of accountability, and, and the notion that people who hold power should have to justify their decisions, and that they should face rewards or punishments for the decisions that they make, you know, what I observe in Ukraine, you know there are some uniquely Ukrainian manifestations of both corruption and accountability. But it's a, it's a, it transcends in human societies. So where does it come from in Ukraine? Well, it comes in some respects from the same place it comes from anywhere Mm -hmm. in any society. And that is people who have power will sometimes try to take advantage of that power. But in the Ukrainian case, I also believe that there are some experiences from the Soviet Union that have influenced practices in Ukraine over time. And I talk about some of those uh, in in the book. And there are some post-Soviet practices that are not unique to Ukraine. Things like um, the use of kompromat in in, um, efforts to undermine political opponents. And we can trace those back, you know, at least to late Soviet times. And, and, and certainly it's a common practice across post-Soviet states. And we know that that term has been used more recently in, in discussions of Western European politics and U.S. politics. So I think it comes from sort of a deeply held human uh, tendency to try to take advantage of situations. I don't wanna sound pessimistic about people, but you know, a, a little bit of healthy pessimism is probably a, a good thing to have. But it's informed by the experiences of Ukraine, especially in the Soviet period and, and through that early post-Soviet period as well. And so we can talk about some of the specific manifestations if you'd like, but as a kind of general characterization um, I think that's that's the Ukrainian flavor of corruption comes from from both of those uh, both of those elements mm-hmm.
0: um, and um, uh, You also mentioned some organizations that monitor the corruption uh, that currently takes place um, Would you comment a little bit on those organizations how effective they are and uh, what they specifically focus on um, in their activities?
1: I think one of the most it- really incredible and positive developments in Ukraine since independence, but especially uh, maybe in the last decade to decade Mm -hmm. and a half, is the development of an incredibly robust civil society. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is across the board. One of the reasons why Ukraine has not fallen into some of the traps of its post Soviet neighbors, because we can see how organized citizens try to hold government officials accountable and really successfully reveal corruption and reveal it in ways that sometimes prompts uh, responses. Sometimes those responses are repressive responses, uh, and sometimes those responses are uh, to correct the, the, the flaws that these organizations have identified. So we can look at the media, and of course, you know, the famous case of, of um, Fiorgi Gangadze, you know, he was an anti-corrupt, well, he was a journalist who whose work related to corruption led to his untimely death at the hands of government officials. And so, you know, he, he inspired movements that ultimately led to the Orange Revolution and what we saw in the 2000s, and we can argue that there's a through line to Euromaidan as well. We also have organizations that have emerged, Committee of Voters of Ukraine, Chesno, Cifra, a, a whole range of organizations who have various missions, whether it's monitoring the behavior of legislators, whether it's analyzing election administration, uh, whether it is addressing the the quality of election processes in Ukraine. And we could talk about non-governmental organizations in other spheres. I'm just going to focus on Mm -hmm. these, these few. They have been able to not only point out flaws, make recommendations for change, but really affect change. I mean, one of the things that's happened since the book was published. So in, in one of the chapters, I talk about, uh, illicit proxy voting by members of the Verkhovna Norada. So members of parliament are supposed to cast their own votes, a practice developed whereby political parties or members of political parties would cast votes for absent members. Uh, using the cards that are um, provided to every member of parliament to, for use in the electronic voting system. And a non-governmental organization would report on these events, publish video evidence of it occurring. And um, this is a practice that was not just associated with the old party of regions. It It was a practice that was Fairly widespread for all sorts of reasons uh, that I talk about in the book. But after the book was published, one of the reform efforts that the Zelensky administration advanced was to raise the punishment associated with this activity, really give the the law some ability to deter that behavior. It also gave registered media representatives the right to. Essentially, file claims. So it elevated civil society in the process of addressing this illicit behavior. And if you look, uh, you know, I recently looked at the at Chesno's website, and there just isn't evidence, at least contemporary evidence, of this practice occurring. Certainly, at the level it did in the past. And it is this partnership between civil society and government, but also the role of civil society in raising these issues that makes this reform not only possible, but effective. And so I think one of the great positives that you can see in in Ukraine in terms of its democratization process is the role of citizens, not just young people, but especially young people, Mm -hmm. and civil society organizations.
0: Yeah, Uh, thank you, Eric. And uh, your comment just uh, made me think about our first presidential election in the 90s. And uh, I think that, like you mentioned, uh, yes, we started talking about the systemic corruption in Ukraine in the 90s already. But the first uh, presidential election, I don't think that there was this conversation about corrupted uh, elections, particularly for uh, for that time period, as well as for the independence referendum. Uh, Of course, we can discuss those results, we can just speculate about the results, but the uh, referendum itself wasn't questioned, and the way it was conducted wasn't questioned either, at least on some fundamental level. So, uh, I'm thinking about... um, uh, well, I know that you wrote extensively on Ukraine and on the uh, electoral system in Ukraine. And I'm w- wondering if you uh, had a chance to um, draw some comparisons between this particular first presidential election and the subsequent elections, which were actually uh, painted with, uh, tainted with, um, with, uh, with corruption, with profound corruption.
1: Yeah, you know, the early elections across post-Soviet space are, are generally characterized by high level of citizen engagement mm-hmm. um, and a, a kind of post-Soviet euphoria. Where uh, do can we conclude that there wasn't the level of corruption that we found in the later in the nineties and the two thousands in the case of Ukraine? I think that anecdotally it seems that that is likely the case. There wasn't as much attention and systematic attention to the process on the ground for us to, to kind of draw those conclusions. Although again, anecdotally, it seems like those founding elections were um, freer and fairer than some of the later elections. They had different kinds of flaws that I think scholars have, have paid Mm -hmm. attention to. And, and, and maybe it's not so much the presidential election, but the parliamentary election. So the, The first parliamentary elections in Ukraine used an inherited system from the Soviet Union. So you needed a majority in your district to win a seat, and it was all district-based. And ballots were a negative ballot. So instead of voting for candidates, you were voting against the candidates you didn't support. And so what happened in Ukraine in those founding elections was – a series of by-elections because mm-hmm. seats couldn't be filled. And so what you ended up with was underrepresentation representation because districts didn't have someone to represent them. And so I think that some of the flaws that you know, scholars have focused on in those early elections have more to do with the, um, the use of these inherited institutions and the flaws of those rules Uh, you know, rather than election quality issues, which emerged much more in the Kuchma
0: Mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I just came across some statistics, uh, which said that today the majority of young uh, people who are interested in politics are actually relatives to the current politicians. Uh, do, you, do you agree that it's some sort of a trend or it's just, again, some uh, way to influence the uh, um, residents, Ukrainian residents, or to construct some um, some specific image of what uh, Ukrainian politics look like today?
1: Yeah, I don't, you know, that's a good question. I do think that there has been a tendency in Ukraine over time and we can see this in public opinion polls for citizens to have a great deal of cynicism about politicians. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be a huge surprise that the people who are most positively inclined have, you know, are related to politicians, but the, um, the, I think again, this is as an outsider, observing what's happened in Ukraine over several waves of reforms and really impressive public efforts to build a less corrupt society. Mm -hmm. I I think what often happens, you know, I, I tell an anecdote in the book at the beginning of the book about being in Ukraine at the time of the Orange Revolution and walking on Kreshatik and, and on Maidan and talking to people about what, why, why they were protesting. Because at the time, at the time when I was there, you know, there were rumors that there would be crackdowns. Of course we know that that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but there were reasons to believe that participation in this protest movement could come with some punishment. So, you know, we didn't know it would be successful. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the failure of the protest movement could, could, um, could be problematic in, in all sorts of personal and professional uh, outcomes. And so um, what, what has always, you know, impressed me is the willingness to take those risks. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I found when I talked to people then or I talked to people in the wake of Euromaidan is, and I, I don't think this is a Ukrainian phenomenon uniquely, but there is a, a tendency to ascribe to the public officials who come in the wake of these big events. So Viktor Yushchenko in the case of the Orange Revolution or uh, President Zelensky in the case of you know, Euromaidan, Poroshenko, and then Zelensky in the case of Euromaidan a belief or a desire for the problems to be fixed mm-hmm. and hope that things will be better, but not really a concrete sense of what is possible. And so an inevitable sense of dissatisfaction or betrayal when the problems don't go away. Mm-hmm. And you know we see this, especially with um, President Zelensky who wrote this wave of anti-corruption, of an anti-corruption campaign, and uh, you know a set of hopes and beliefs that he could come in and really change politics as usual. And and uh, I, I, I again don't want to be cynical about what can be accomplished, but when he was elected and when um, Servant of the People won um, its you know impressive victory in parliamentary elections, mm-hmm. I said to myself that you know people are going to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 uh, changing the status quo and dealing with corruption is is much a much longer term challenge. Right. And so I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I think that one of the one of the tendencies that I've seen is for hopes to be very high but ill-defined. And high ill-defined hopes can't be satisfied. And I hope that as time progresses, that, that people's hopes for a better future can be channeled into much more clearly defined and, and readily attainable outcomes so that you know progress can be made. Progress tends to be slow. Mm-hmm. Revolutionary change and revolutionary progress is pretty rare. And so stability over time will facilitate this And again, I, 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 the development of kind of realistic goals for politicians to achieve, uh, will be, um, you know, will be more productive, I think for the Ukrainian people as they as
0: they move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that your prediction in terms of uh, people's disappointment with Zelensky and his administration is coming true because it was such, such a uh, drastic collapse of his uh, of, of his support and uh, of, of support of, he, of him and his administration at a time. Um, you also mentioned in your book that Ukraine is a valuable case for the study of the uh, transition towards democracy. And how's a Ukrainian case in terms of attempts to overcome corruption, which may May seem systemic, differ from other countries, such as Baltic countries, Georgia and Russia. And, of course, Baltic countries are probably a different case because Soviet presence was always defined as occupation in the first place, which wasn't true probably for Ukraine. But, however, today we have this current conversation to present um, Soviet presence as occupation as well.
1: there's certainly at least a part of Ukraine that has that parallel uh, circumstance with the Baltic States. Um, And so while all of Ukrainian territory, we might not characterize in that way, you know, certainly a part of it has a similar uh, historical uh, um, sort of relationship with the Soviet union as the Baltic States did. I think that we can draw some important lessons from Ukraine's neighbors. And one of the things I tried to do in the book was when reflecting on accountability, corruption, reform to, to, to kind of establish realistic com- points of comparison. It's not fair to Ukraine, to Ukrainians, to um, set the goal that they look like Norway mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. five years or 10 years. Uh, the process of reform does take time. But neighbors like the Baltic states, like Georgia, can provide some examples of both things to do and things not to do. Mm -hmm. And also we have to be careful about the parallels because, for example, with the Baltic states, they had this inherent advantage of a clear invitation to Europe, and a pathway to Europe that could propel anti-corruption movements forward and reforms forward, where Ukraine does not have that kind of an invitation. Now, Georgia is in a similar situation as Ukraine when it comes to, you know, invitation to Europe. And Georgia took a different path on its anti-corruption reforms than did the Baltic states. Took a much Uh, more draconian approach in many ways Mm -hmm. to corruption. And I was in Georgia in 2004 and I went back in 2008 and you could see tremendous change um, in terms of even just petty corruption. As I was trying to leave the country in 2004, one of the border guards was essentially trying to shake me down for a bribe. And nothing like that um, w- was occurring, at least from my observation, uh, just a few years down the line. But the costs were tremendous, mm-hmm. and the fate of President Saakashvili and his experience there you know, shows that the costs were very, very high for, for, for Georgians. So Ukrainians have some examples to, to look on, uh, to look toward. And they've taken some of those examples in many respects. I mean, having independent anti-corruption agencies and so on draws from the experience of some of the Baltic states. And um, they were successful in rooting out corruption. The goal of anti-corruption reform isn't really to get rid of all corruption. Democratic societies that have the best ratings by organizations like Transparency International, so measuring perceptions of corruption. There is still corruption. Yes. Uh, you know, we, We're not looking at a corruption-free society, but what, what's important to move toward is a society where the rule of law is the default assumption, that the norms are that corruption is a practice that should be rooted out that it is illicit and it's not normal. And that's the direction that I think most Ukrainians would agree they want to go. The pathway forward is is hard to know, but I do think the experiences, especially of the Baltic states, but also of Georgia, can, can be informative. Ukraine, though, has to choose its own path because it has characteristics, its size, its diversity that really do differ from those um, those other examples.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate your words, uh, Eric, in terms of how we can approach the very term corruption as well, uh, especially in Ukraine, because in Ukraine, I think uh, the word, the very term corruption is used, overused, abused, and it's sometimes just instrumentalized and it's just applied to everything that goes wrong. It's corruption. And I think it's some sort of a trope that now represents the whole country. And so I really, uh, I really appreciate your words and uh, your explanation. Uh, so Thank you. you. Uh, uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that you share your research with students and uh, uh, you analyze some cases. Uh, do you have a chance to teach um, some material that pertains to Ukraine? And if so, if yes, uh, what's your students' response uh, to this To this particular case? I, I
1: do. I do. I, I often weave in examples um, at the undergraduate and graduate levels. And I think it's important to to provide those real world examples and, and the context to students. So I try to be really careful about how I introduce material from Ukraine or from any other society, because on the one hand, especially at the undergraduate level, if you tell an anecdote, you tell an anecdote that might have some kind of amusing component to it, this can be useful in getting their attention and illustrating a point, but you also don't want to develop a stereotype or a a kind of false image, um, a kind of exotic image of another society as well. Mm -hmm. And so I try and strike a balance. I probably am not always successful at doing that, Um, but I always try to be respectful of, in you know, if it's Ukraine or if it's another country, the, the people in the society to to remind students, especially those who are American students. And I have a, a, a really international uh, student population. And um, I mean, I have Ukrainian students in my classes as well. And, and so the reactions to the stories of Ukraine, of course, vary based on the experience and knowledge that students have. But one of the things I, I try to be very mindful of is... Providing these anecdotes, stories, um, examples as an important context, but to remind students that um, these aren't exotic other places that are so different from our experience that we can kind of gaze upon them and judge them as as flawed uh, without being self-reflective. So I, you know, just thinking about when I was writing this book, it's based on many years of my data collection analysis, um, field work, and really thinking about these questions. And it was inspired by events in Ukraine. But over the last four or five years in the United States, I've been reflecting on how you know, what I wrote in this book can describe some of the processes that we've seen at high levels of government in the United States, the kind of normalization of corrupt practices, the idea, just as an example, that historically there was a norm that a president wouldn't profit from being in the office of the presidency through their own private investments. And that there has been a failure of accountability in the United States to hold our public officials to that standard and so when we look at a country like ukraine or, or anywhere else in the world uh, we have to be very careful about the mindset we bring to our evaluation of what's happening on the ground because the while the specific circumstances differ and societies you know do grow and develop based on their own experiences and so we have to be careful that they're we're not over uh, over comparing or over an, uh, creating analogies that don't really exist, but at the same time, we have to be mindful of looking at a process and recognizing it in our own societies, um, and making sure that our students reflect on mm-hmm. the American experience in 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 a similar way to to their reflection on experiences in in other societies or, or, or their analysis of other
0: societies. And, um, what about your current projects? Are they in any way connected with, uh, this topic, uh, on Ukraine, or maybe, uh, you're focusing on other countries?
1: No, no, they, they are. So I have probably three big projects that I'm working on. Uh, one is a collaboration with two other scholars on vulnerabilities, of countries that border Russia, especially mm-hmm. in terms of the state, the, the 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 ability of the state to provide civilian services. So elections are a part of that, and Ukraine is one of the countries we're looking at. We're also looking at Estonia, and Georgia. I'm working on a project with a colleague in Germany on ballot design and its effects. That one is less Ukraine focused, although um, it certainly is relevant for the study of elections and. Practice of elections in Ukraine, and then the third project is with a colleague at the University of Oslo, which is supported by the Norwegian Research Council, and it d- deals directly with Ukrainian politics and society uh, post Maidan. So I have many many things c- coming uh, coming down the line, and most of them uh, s- most of them involve Ukraine directly or indirectly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you'll be able to travel to Ukraine soon.
1: I do too. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for for this conversation today. And thank you so much for your book uh, that, well... um... Corruption usually in Ukraine is used on everyday terms and it is accompanied by a lot of emotions, different emotions. But uh, your book is an excellent contribution in terms of how uh, we can uh, talk about corruption on some academic level and how we can approach these problems uh, academically so that we can cope with them instead of just uh, uh, getting emotional over the system which is flawed and which is corrupted from from uh, top to bottom. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, Today I spoke with Eric Heron about his book Normalizing Corruption Failures of Accountability in Ukraine, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies podcast channel on the New Books Network.